0: This Experience. We are live. Today is Sunday, October 16th, 2016, if you're watching us live. But if you're watching us at a later time, that's not the date. So check your calendar. I'm Matt Delaney. Joining me this week, special guest, Ed Brayton. Welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, Ed, we've, we've known for years from Free thought Blogs, but you're at Pathios and it's mm-hmm. uh, Dispatches from the Culture Wars. Yep. And you've been doing like this weird Texas tour over the last 48 hours. It's <laughs> yeah. like... It's it's like barbecue and benevolence.
1: Yeah, this has been uh, three days. Well, I've been here three days, but this is uh, uh, the last uh, thing I have to do while I'm here. Uh, Given three talks in three cities, plus this taping in less than 48 hours. So I've been on kind of a whirlwind tour of Texas. Just to make it clear,
0: we are not forcing Ed to do this against his will. No, Uh, Just because this is the last thing he has to do doesn't mean he's not happy to be here. True. (laughs) Plus, it would violate child labor laws. Yes. So, we're uh, sponsored by the Atheist Community of Austin. You can find out more about the Atheist Community of Austin at www.atheist-community.org. This is a live call-in broadcast where we talk to all sorts of people. Theist callers are preferred. The telephone number is right there. And we like to talk about what you believe and why, figure out where we disagree, maybe better ways of uh, dealing with the world. After the show is over, we get together for dinner, and we've been going to one restaurant, but today we're switching it up, and they'll put the address at the bottom of the screen. We're going to Styles Barbecue on Lamar, 6610 North Lamar. It's right there. Down just a little. I can't get my... There it is. Just below that. That's your name. That's where you need to go. Well, I can't... That would be a good special effect if I could, like, reach over the label to... You're a magician. Come on. Get to work. I'm working on it. So... I was there uh, today at the Austin History Center. It wasn't our regular lecture, so it was a special one, and, you know, various things occurred. But I love the fact that, you know, you kind of gave your backstory, story. And, and why don't you tell us a little bit about what the talk was about and what you're actually trying to encourage in the community.
1: Yeah, the talk is entitled Why Atheism is Not Enough. Uh, and essentially the point of it, 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 it's a very personal story of my sort of journey from being, an atheist activist for about 20 years, and I'm still an atheist and I'm still an activist, but shifting the focus of my activism more toward humanism, more toward uh, taking those positive ideas of humanism, of support for justice and equality and fairness, and and a moral obligation to help other people, and really putting that into action uh, in the real world. Uh, Because if you're just going to hang your ideals on the wall, they're not going to do much good for you. Uh, and so it's, it's just a very personal story about my journey and some of the things that happened along the way that kept pushing me along that road uh, to where I certainly still identify as an atheist. And I think you should uh, if it's safe for you to do so. Uh, labels isn't really the point, though. I don't care about labels. I actions. That's that's the point.
0: And I, I just did a video the other day about atheist, agnostic, whatever, talking about the labels, which labels are appropriate, when, and at the end of it, I'm like, I don't care what you call me. I'm going to call myself an atheist. I'm also a secular humanist. I've just done two different discussions that were supposed to be about secular humanism. One of them turned out to be uh, about the logical absolutes, because the person I was debating decided they didn't care to talk about the actual subject. Uh, but I did an event out in San Jose where I was able to talk a little bit more about this, and there's more of that coming. Um, this Friday, I'll be in Milwaukee
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, moderating a debate between Bartram and Robert Price, and then Saturday, I go to Skeptics of Oz in Kansas, a Kansas uh, skeptic convention. I still don't know what I'm going to say at that convention, but you I can know. guarantee you that it will include strong elements of secular humanism. You never know what you're going to say before you. Say it. That's true. It's uh, you know, might jot down a note but i think it's you know we we talked about this last night you mentioned it today in your in your talk we take a lot of calls a lot of people eventually change their mind based either you know on on this show on some other show about a blog a debate you know in discussion with friends and where do they go you know okay i've i no longer believe in a god so i don't have that to rely on what do i do now
1: right yeah and i think it's really important for the secular communities to build secular communities all over the place mm-hmm. And to build a diverse variety of secular communities to give these people sort of a safe landing place. Uh, because what, you know, when you lose your religion, and this wasn't in my specific case, this didn't happen. Uh, Mine was sort of an easy transition from Christianity to atheism. But a lot of people, it's a pretty traumatic thing, and it's because they aren't just saying, I've changed my mind about this idea. They're leaving everything they knew behind. They're leaving their support network. Sometimes their families throw them out. They're leaving a community of support around them, and that's Terrifying for a lot of people, and so it's really important, I think, for for humanist organizations, atheist organizations, whatever it is you call yourself. Like I said, I don't care about labels. To 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 have some place those people can land where they can have a uh, a listening ear that maybe has been through what they've been through. Right. Um, and I just think that's a really important thing. And I and I mean, it's happening more and more, and it's happening in yes. a variety of ways. You know that you've got the Oasis and Sunday Assembly, uh, and you've got. Um, living without religion, support groups, and you know, there's a whole variety of these things, and I think we just we have to keep building those
0: up. I think that's really important. Uh, you know, the, the ones that you mentioned, Sunday Assembly, Oasis, things like that, uh, they oftentimes get listed as atheist church, and, and some people, including Tom Flynn from the Center for Inquiry, who <laughs> should resign for saying that these people are not sufficiently secular. But we know that different people have different needs. You and I don't go to those things unless we happen to be speaking. It's not our thing. But there's a lot of stuff that goes on, even within just the atheist community of Austin. Um, there's the uh, the Ramp Project, the street cleanup, blood drives, um, atheists helping the homeless, all these other things. And these are community service things. But that you can do that, but that doesn't have to be what it's about. It could just be getting together with other people so that you don't feel alone. We're talking about individuals. Who are often ostracized from everybody they know, lose their support network.
1: Yeah, in my talk, I sort of focus on two things. One is the importance of doing service projects, uh, of you know, Habitat for Humanity builds and that sort of thing, Uh, and that's really important. And building secular communities, but those can happen at the same time. Mm. Uh, And so I, I, you know, that's just I think really, really important. And and, you know, I I sort of I know I'm preaching to the choir here in in Austin. You guys have been doing this for 20 years, Um, and you have been doing service projects all along, and so. I know I'm sort of preaching to the choir here, but, uh, uh, you know, that's it's a message I think we need to get out more and more across the country to different organizations.
0: I think one of the big fears from some people is that, you know, we've built this atheist community, the secular community, and people are worried that it's going to change. Hang on a minute. I just wanted to do Skeptics in the Pub. I right. just wanted to, you know, go out and drink with somebody. And now you're trying to add a bunch of stuff to it. Well, then just go to Skeptics in the Pub. Exactly. <laughs> participate <laughs> in the things you want to participate in. Don't participate in the things you don't want to participate yeah. in and stop saying that the people who do the things that you don't like to do are somehow inferior or are not sufficiently Right. Secular. Well, you, you
1: mentioned Sunday Assembly. I have so little interest, uh, primarily because I know there's a very good chance if I go to a Sunday Assembly, people are going to spontaneously burst into song, and that makes me want to burst into flames.
0: So we're uh, not gonna hold hands and sing Kubayanda no, on the show. I okay. have a pathological
1: <laughs> hatred of group singing and it stems from being in a musical in high school that I've never really emotionally recovered from, but that's a whole different show. Um, but I'm so glad they're there. Yeah. They don't the fact that it doesn't appeal to me doesn't mean it doesn't provide a tremendous opportunity for other people, and so I'm thrilled that they're there and that they're they're available to people who want and need that kind of community. That's great.
0: Well, on that note, we're going to start taking some calls. We'll ask some other questions of, of Ed throughout this. Um, you can go to atheist-experience.com for information on how to connect to the show. But the telephone number is up there as well as down there. There's also a green link you can click to, to get through. Right now, the, the lines are mostly full, although we have mostly atheist callers. We we try to have a preference for theist callers. And so we'll start with Zane in Atlanta. Thanks for waiting Hi, Matt. Hi. You're on with Matt and Ed.
3: Hello. Hello. Um- I Um, I had um, listened to you before. You have said um, religion isn't the cause of um, many of these problems that you talk about, but they foster it.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, I was thinking, is there a way that um, you could combat the um, problems while keeping religion intact?
1: You know, I I would kind of flip that question around, and I would say, are there ways that we can... As secular people, and I know you're a theist, so this wouldn't include you, but that is my answer. Um, Are there ways that secular communities can provide some of the benefits that religious communities do without all of the the religious aspects of it? And, and, you know, this is what we've been talking about. And the answer is yes. Yeah, building secular communities um, is the way to do it. Because I think the primary benefit that people get from religion is that community support network. And I think, in fact, that's what keeps most people in religion. For most people, in this—at least in the United States—I think their religion doesn't actually have a daily effect on their lives very much. Their their community has a big daily uh, effect on their lives, and that's why they tend to stay there. Most of them, I don't think, think particularly deeply on the subject, uh, and and that's fine um but it's it's the community aspects that are really matter and so the more we can replicate that then the more i think we can provide the same benefits that religion does without all the religion so
0: and and to your question with without flipping it can we solve the problems that religions tend to foster without while still keeping the religion sure but why would you want to so if what you're looking for out of religion is community aspects that's what ed and i were talking about earlier that these uh issues can be resolved that there, we can build communities that don't make any appeals to religion. My main objection to religions is that I find no good reason to think they're true. The fact that they may also cause harm is a secondary issue but you could point to a religion that makes outlandish claims about the supernatural with no demonstration that it's true and yet is entirely benevolent and, and does good. I mean you could manufacture a religion like this. I don't think that many people would follow it because I, I think too many people like uh, struggling against things, but why would you want to keep a religion if there's no demonstration that it's true or likely to be true?
3: Uh, basically because um people believe a lot of things um that aren't true, and instead of trying to tackle every um false belief they have, uh can we just get them to be you know good people?
0: Uh, Don't get me wrong. I'm happier with religious people. So like when I was in San Jose, the the, uh, pastor that put together the event, he runs a community church. He's a Christian. He supports uh, the LGBT community and is genuinely a nice guy. I got no problem with most of what he has to say. My question is, why are you calling yourself a Christian? What is it about the religion that you care about? Um, What is it that you think is true? And if the answer is, well, we can't fix everything, if people are going to believe things that are wrong and we can't fix every, why can't we fix everything? Why shouldn't you question everything? If it's easy, if you already recognize that people believe false things, why wouldn't you try to correct that? Because if you have are become convinced that something is true when it's not, that belief itself may not impact, you know, have much of an impact on your life. But the fact that your brain can reach the incorrect conclusion may be a problem for other things. You know, maybe you're going to start believing in lucky socks and rabbit foots. Maybe you're going to start believing that autism is caused by vaccines. Maybe you're going to start denying scientific findings because you have Matt? some flawed thinking about it. Matt? Yeah.
3: Um, I guess another way to tackle it is that um, that on both sides, from theists and atheists. um, you you know, you can find people that are good um, and find people that are bad. Yep. And, you know, and um, instead of being worried about if they're um, an atheist or a atheist, uh is there really like a group that set out, you know, that have a way of just getting people to be, uh, is neighborly a good word? It is what? Is neighborly a good word? Instead of worrying about if they're atheists or atheist, Sure,
0: secular uh, humanism. We just try to, um, hmm? Secular humanism.
3: Oh, they're not worried about the people are theists or atheists, they just try to help people be better?
0: You could be a theist and still implement the ideals of secular humanism just by basically ignoring your religion. Um, I care about what people believe because their beliefs inform their actions, and their actions have consequences for them and for everybody else. So you're going to find people who do bad things and think bad things that are separate from whether or not they believe in a god, but you need to address those too. I I just don't understand why you're so desperate to give the God thing a pass, uh, and let's just encourage people to be good, and if they believe in a God, that's fine. Why would you want people to be irrational about one of the biggest questions ever that's likely to inform other decisions and opinions they have?
3: Well, it wouldn't be trying to keep people irrational. It's talking about picking your battles instead of trying to battle the religion, just battle um, bad behavior.
1: I, I would say that, that there's sort of two separate questions here. The question of the existence of God is one, and on that I agree with Matt. Um, that you, that's an important question that you need to give sort of critical analysis to. Quite apart from whether religion does good or bad things, or encourages people to do good or bad things. But the second question is: Are there things that we could do that sort of look beyond the differences on the existence of God that help people? Of course there are. There are interfaith groups all over the country. Um, where I come from in Grand Rapids uh, there's a very strong interfaith community where um, atheists get together with Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and Jews and everybody else and we do all sorts of projects and that's a wonderful thing but that's still a completely separate question
0: from what Matt's talking about yeah I mean the, the example that I often use is the Reverend Barry Lynn He's the president of Americans United for church state separation. I will share a stage with him. We are friendly. Uh, I enjoy his company. I'd rather share a stage with him than some atheists I know when we're working towards church state separation, or separation of religion and government, which might be better language. But I will also debate him and point out why I disagree with him on whether or not a god exists, because I don't think that's a trivial matter that we should just brush under the rug. I think attempting to brush that under the rug is how we got to where we are. Because if you look back to the end of the 19th century, when you had scientific discoveries and people were talking about, you know, Darwinian evolution, and what happened was there was a group of intellectual elite who said, oh, we've got this religion thing licked, let the little people keep their religion." You know, let let's let, the, let let's let these little people worry about this, and we we just won't even talk about it because it's you know it's gonna go away. Well, they were wrong, and they were wrong in, a, in an incredibly embarrassing way because there was a revival and a and a thrust against the godless communists that encouraged more zealot like behavior with regard to Christianity and religion. Um, my thing is, I'm happy to point out. That there's good people and bad people, irrespective of their belief in a God. But that's a separate issue from whether or not they have any good reason to believe that there's a God. And if oh, you're, man. if the point is to say, why are you worried about this thing? It's because it matters. It's because of what people are doing on behalf of that belief in their particular religion. May I answer it?
3: Sure. Um, I know my time is short, so i ask this last question now that you move on. Okay. Um, from um, there's a certain fan channel um, that you undo- that um, I guess the show endorses, and it um, shows a lot of you saying it's impossible to believe something that you don't understand, and then you speak in gibberish and ask them, Do you understand it? Right. So, um, since you claim to have been a Christian for 25 years, does that mean you had understood Christianity for that time or?
0: Yeah, I well, I believed what I understood. Now, you, you can argue as to whether or not I had a correct understanding. That's completely separate. But there, I certainly had an understanding, I, I, and I believed it to be true. It wasn't gibberish.
3: Okay, so, my I, I was just trying to get to, like, okay, so you have, um, you understood Christianity, and you kept that belief for 25 years. I'm just trying to say, is you know, is that a fair statement to make? That's all I'm trying to get to.
0: I, I don't understand your question.
3: Is there a fair statement to make that you understood what you was believing for 25 years, that you understood Christianity and you were still believing it for 25 years? Is that a fair statement to make?
0: I, I suspect that that's a pretty fair statement to make. That I I want to try to get to what you're asking, because I've addressed this before, because people will say, oh, Matt, you were never a true Christian. And, oh no! no uh, hang I'm on, trying to get H- is- hang on, hang on, Zane. Because I, I think this—I think this may answer. They'll say, "Oh, you were never a true Christian." Okay, what is a true Christian? Because if a true Christian is somebody who actually has a relationship with the risen Savior, then you're correct. Not you, but whoever's saying this. I wasn't a true Christian, and neither is anybody else as far as I'm aware of, because there's no risen Savior to have a relationship with. But if a true Christian is somebody who believes, based on uh Bible or private revelation, that Jesus was divine, that Jesus died for their sins, that you have to uh, repent, and by God's grace and through faith you'll be saved, and you'll have an afterlife, if that is the nutshell of what is to be understood as Christianity, then I actually believed that, and that was my understanding of it. Whether or not I had a correct understanding is uh, kind of a nonsensical question because nobody's been able to demonstrate what the correct understanding is, which is why there are thousands of denominations that identify as Christian and disagree on everything.
1: And, and, and let me just note that probably a better answer to that question or a better phrasing of the question would simply be that your understanding probably
0: changed over the course of 25 years. Sure. When I walked down the aisle at 5 at the revival and accepted Jesus into my heart, I probably didn't understand it well at all because when I became a teenager and I gained a better understanding, the first thing that happened is I was terrified that I wasn't actually saved and had thought I would had been saved all these years because of if, if I'm just now understanding it as a teenager, how could I possibly have understood it at 5? So you get saved again. And then you fail and rededicate and you get the circle of grief thing. So uh, it's not like Christianity is a thing for which there is an understanding.
3: Um, what I was trying to get at is that uh, are you saying that you knew what Christianity was and you were still going along with it for 25 years? Because um, well, I hear a lot of atheists say that the biggest um, weapon to religion is making the people read their holy book. Yes. So, did you know your? So, did you know the Holy Book? But then you still went along for it for twenty five years. Yes. Because I think a lot of atheists will say that if you knew the Holy Book, you wouldn't um, like it anymore. Yeah. So, well, I'm so thinking, the thing is,
0: I I had read and had a good understanding of the Bible, and the process of, of finding my way out of this was to say uh, when I'd read criticisms of the Bible coming from atheists or from. You know other religions as to why Christianity couldn't be real. Um, My immediate reaction was, well, that's not in the Bible, or it's not in the Bible that way, or they're taking it out of context. But when I studied it in detail, I found that sometimes that's the case. Sometimes there's a lot of horrible arguments that are that are flawed that don't have a good understanding of the Bible. But there were other arguments that weren't being taken out of context. Um, It's not taking it out of context to to understand what Exodus 21 has to say about slavery. It's it's not. Uh, when when you talk about Abraham and Isaac and that, that sacrifice that didn't quite happen, it's not taking that out of context to say, first of all, this is a flawed test. There's no reason why any reasonably intelligent being, let alone a god, would ever devise such a test because he has nothing to learn from it, and the person who is engaging in this has nothing to learn from it other than, no, my god wouldn't ask me to kill my kids, so you're a demon, get away. So the, the entire test is flawed. Um, There's there's no way around this idea of original sin or inherited sin or substitutional atonement or infinite punishment for finite crimes it's when you're when I was a believer and when many people are believers they talk about reading the Bible through the eyes of the Holy Spirit I would say that is reading the Bible through the blinders of ignorance and the bias of assuming that everything you read must be good and true if instead you begin to care about whether or not it's actually true and good Then you have to come up with criteria by which you're going to assess it. And now you can critically examine what it says, and it's either passes or it fails. And in the case of the Bible, it fails.
3: Okay. All right. Thanks, Sam. Thank you.
0: Appreciate Um, the call.
3: Thank you for having me on the show. And I would also like to say Jen Peoples is hilarious. She makes some pretty good jokes when she's on
0: the show. All right. Thanks. All right. Goodbye. Goodbye. Now, my background is probably a little bit different from yours. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about, because I came from a fundamentalist Southern Baptist family, and you come from a weirder mix. (laughs) Yeah. Uh,
1: My uh, father, 81-year-old father, is an atheist and has been since he was 16 years old. Uh, And my stepmother, who is the woman who raised me, um, is a Pentecostal. And in uh, January, they will celebrate their 40th anniversary. So uh, don't ask me to explain that, because I have no explanation for it. (laughs) Uh, but it's you know here's the thing I, I've said this before I appreciate having been raised that way now because it meant I didn't have a default position most people just are whatever their parents are you know they raised me to be Episcopalian I'll be Episcopalian whatever I didn't have that option I had to think things through for myself uh, and reach some sort of conclusion and so even though I adopted Christianity as a teenager uh, You know, 16, 17 years old, I started really researching this Because some of it just started not to make sense for me And ultimately I decided that there just wasn't evidence to support this belief And I stopped and I became an atheist So, yeah, I have kind of a weird, you know, raised in downtown Beirut in 1982
0: kind of upbringing <laughs> so. All right, so we've got uh, George in Cleveland Thanks for waiting here on with uh, Matt and Ed Hey, um
4: uh, yeah, so, you yeah, I'm a big fan of your show. I've been for the past couple of years. Actually, if it wasn't for you, uh, Matt, uh, I probably wouldn't be where I'm at right now as far as my um, beliefs and things of nature. So I do, uh, you know, I, it's a great honor, actually, to be on the phone with you. Uh, with that Thanks. said, I have a question. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that Ken Hovind argument before about God's existence and him being outside of the realm of space, time, and matter. Uh, I'm sure you have, and, and I had one of my closest. Uh, well, my, my brother and his girlfriend. Their well, his girlfriend. Uh, they uh, they're really really hardcore Pente- Pentecostal people. I actually come from a Pentecostal background as well. Mm-hmm. So you know, she was just wild away about this Ken Hovind argument about him being outside, God being outside of. So
0: matter. Hey, George. So yeah. the audio is a little fuzzy, so I want to clear this up just in case. Basically, you're saying Kent Hovind has an argument that God exists outside of space and time, and and how do you respond to that? Is that the question? Yeah, correct. Yeah, first of all, yeah. it's not an argument, it's a claim, and so the responses prove it. That's it. <laughs> Secondarily, you can talk about what does it mean to exist outside of space and time? What makes you think there is any possibility or anything that is outside of space and time? An existence is necessarily temporal If something exists for zero seconds It doesn't exist, right? Yeah, so, correct So if it exists outside of time Then it exists for no time, right?
4: Correct Yeah
0: But the big thing is fair. The big thing is, is to wow. ask him to demonstrate the claim um, when, when somebody makes a claim like this About God or creation or anything else They've adopted a burden of proof They've made a positive claim They need to defend it if instead you start looking for a way to debunk that, you've already made a mistake because you're shifting the burden of proof onto you. You'd leave it right where it belongs.
4: That's true. Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah, I guess uh, I guess that's the best argument. You know, It's just you know a lot of theists and even on uh, a lot of the debate pages that I've been on lately, they've just been using that argument or say, you know, God, we can't see God. God is outside of our spectrum. You know, God, uh, he's in a different dimension and things. And I'm, I'm always just like, okay, how is that even, like, how do you guys even know that? That's just, yeah. you know, it's just, it's claims. that's all it is.
0: That, that's the right first question. How do you come by this knowledge? Because in another context, if, you, if somebody had said something exists outside of space and time, what they're also saying is, I have no access to this subject. I cannot possibly investigate it. It's undetectable. It's untestable. And by claiming that it's true, they're claiming to detect the undetectable. They are running around claiming that they are little God detectors detecting something <laughs> that they also say is undetectable. And that, that undercuts their argument right there.
1: That reminds me, I need to put new batteries in my God detector. Ah. <laughs> I actually, I've dealt well, with just... Ken Hovind for a long time. Uh, that was actually my uh-huh. entry into being an atheist activist. Was in college, a friend of mine took me to a Ken Hovind seminar to show me that creationism was true. Uh, And I was so appalled by what I saw that I started writing against it. And uh, the Talk Origins Archive, which I'm sure many of your readers are familiar with, or viewers, watchers, Mm -hmm. uh, are familiar with, Mm -hmm. um, uh, I was involved with them for quite a while. and I was sort of the resident Kent Hovind questioned answerer because every month, we would get many emails, and most of them weren't about that claim, which is not a claim that's particularly unique to Kent Hovind. That's something that a lot of Christians argue. But we would get questions always about the claim, or about his bet, his challenge, $250,000 challenge, that if you could prove evolution was true, he would give you $250,000. Of course, he didn't have $250,000. Um, but the other thing is, though, and my answer was always, you know, the, the the test is completely rigged. I mean, the way it was the way it was written... Uh, you write up your argument for why evolution is true, and he submits it to five of his creationist buddies, and if you've convinced them, you get the money. Uh, well, I can't probably convince those people of anything, and there's no point in trying. So um,
0: that's the question I'm used to answering about Ken Hovind. This comes up also, you know, it takes somebody like Ray Comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He's clearly had the facts and methods of science explained to him with regard to evolution... I did that with my brain uh... explained to him over and over and over again and yet he still views atheism as a fairer uh, evolution as a fairy tale for adults and there are people who look at that and say okay you have had this explained to you over and over again now, now you just must be a liar well that's not the case i don't i don't think that Ray's lying i think he legitimately doesn't understand it and he doesn't believe it Um you you could say that this this makes him stupid I would say that he's stupid on this issue and I'm stupid on other issues. We're all stupid on some issue. The big thing is, is that there is some bias. There is some preconception in his head that prevents him from being able to address the actual facts and, and the, and the methods behind evolution by natural selection. Until you get to what that is, there's no point in having a conversation with him about this. And if you find yourself in a conversation with someone about a different aspect of God, and you're making no headway, you've got to take a step back. How do we tell whether or not something is real? How do we tell whether or not something is likely to be true? If you can't agree on how to get to truth, arguing whether something is true is a waste of time. Unless you're um, doing a public debate and the point is to expose that they don't care about what's true, in which case, then you can still make a point out of it. And for a lot of these people,
1: the, the, the sort of roadblock that you keep hitting up against in, in those kinds of arguments is that for them it can't be true. Right. They, the default position, I mean, remember that the debate between um, Ken Ham and Bill Nye when uh, Tracy Moody, I think, was the one who asked this very simple question, what could change your mind? What could make Bill Nye believe in God? What could make Ken Ham not believe in God? And Bill Nye's answer was evidence. And Ken Ham's answer was, nothing. Uh, well, if you start started from the position that there is absolutely nothing that could possibly convince me uh, that my position is wrong, then if you try to debate that person, you might as well just bang your head up against the wall. You're, you're not going to make any headway with him, uh, because he can't believe that it's true. If he believes that it's true, then he has to stop believing in God in his mind, and, uh, and Uh, And that's already been ruled off the table before he even
0: got started. And in Ray's case, uh, and I've heard him say this, although I won't quote it directly, um, telling him he's no... You could no more convince him that there's no God than that you could convince him that his wife doesn't exist. Because he views God and his relationship with God as co-equal with his wife, which I find absolutely freaking bizarre um, because... I have a relationship with Ed. We're on the show right now. You might still be able to convince me that Ed doesn't exist. I find it incredibly unlikely, but because I don't ascribe to ideas of absolute certainty, maybe this is a delusion. Maybe I'm, you know, in a rubber room and you can finally demonstrate that th- I'm hallucinating all of these, all of this, including Ed. So I would say that I don't necessarily know what it would take to change my mind, but I'm not saying you couldn't. But when it comes to comparing the fact that i am convinced that ed is sitting here talking uh, or listening while i talk is somehow coequal with the idea that there's a god or unicorns or fairies oh my gosh all the christians just lost their mind all of them just lost their shit because i compared god to fairies and unicorns yes because it's warranted to compare this when you come up with better evidence for your your supernatural undetectably detected being that 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 is better than the idea that there might be a you know a horse with a horn, uh, who you know likes virgins and has magical powers. Um, then then all of a sudden there's a disparity between the two. But as long as we have no way to confirm either one, and you're running around claiming this one's believable and this one's not, you're the one that's got the the mistaken foundation for what's real and what's not.
1: You know I've always suspected that you were really a brain in a vat. I've got the T-shirt even. Thanks,
0: Cy Anyway, is that, does that that get to your question? I hope. Amongst, amongst <laughs> yeah, the absolutely. rambling.
4: No, yeah, it does, and I just want to let you know that um, I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, on the October twenty second at seven p.m. supposedly Ray Comfort and Ken Han are premiering a new movie that purpose, you know allegedly destroys atheism with one scientific question. So I just want to you guys. Again. You know,
0: Comfort, just, yeah. Again. I, <laughs> How many many times is he going to claim that he can destroy atheism with one question?
1: This is a repeat from every day ever.
0: Let's
4: see if it's as bad as the banana uh, argument.
0: I think it's it's called Banana Man. Ray emailed me this past week to to ask about using a clip from the TV show, and I sent him to the ACA board because I can't make those decisions. But I think it's called Banana Man, isn't it?
4: well i know Ray is called banana man of uh, me i i refer to him as banana man but i don't
0: I, I, I think that i think that's i
4: appreciate you I, I appreciate your guys time and i appreciate the uh the answers uh uh Matt uh, keep doing what you're doing man I, I you know definitely uh you're definitely i'm definitely one of your bigger fans so you know I, like i said i watch you like every day you know people like well to, go out and take their, a
0: fucking walk. Don't listen to anybody every day. That's how that's how you get to to follow lockstep behind somebody. Go listen to other people. Well, listen to Ray Comfort. Don't, don't listen like, too long because to it's painful. But
4: I listen to listen. I listen to all you know everything that's out there. You know, I'm you know I'm at that point where I'm just like so enthralled and so and you know mostly invested in this you know and just kind of I I, I'm, I feel like I'm on a mission you know just to get the facts out there about you know because I, I you know I was raised in Cleveland you know. Mostly uh, urban, you know, urban settings, you know, inner city. And it just feels like everybody around me is either Pentecostal or Christian. And, you know, at times just, I just feel so, you know, with my girlfriend, we both feel so alone because it's just like, man, everybody just, everybody just believes in God. Everybody. And then nobody sees anything, in a, you know, in a different limelight. It's just like, you know, it's just, it's just hard to, you know. But that, yeah, but that's all. That's all I like got,
1: though. You, you are not alone in Cle- you are not alone in Cleveland. Uh, there is a CFI chapter there, CFI of Northeast Ohio. Um, Monet Richards, okay. Um, and um, if, I spoke there just a couple months ago. Yeah, I've spoken there as well. So you know, if you send, uh, you know, send me a message on Facebook or whatever, I can put you in touch with uh, with the people there. There's a big community there, and they're very active. Or you could Google CFI
0: Cleveland. And find it that right. way as well.
1: And we're going to be bringing okay. Seth, An- Seth Andrews is going to be there later, or early, no, probably spring next year, because I'm booking a whole tour for him uh, of the, the Great Lakes region. So uh, at least get okay. out to see
0: Seth Andrews because he's always great.
4: Absolutely. I will. All right. Thanks, guys.
0: Thanks, George. Appreciate it. That's one of the things. is you know, We talked about it. I've been talking about it for years. Oh, we feel so alone. We're the only atheists we know. And I get that you're the only atheist you know. You're not the only atheist in your, I don't care how small your town is. I mean, unless there's two people in the town and the other person's a preacher, you're probably not the only non-believer. And and even if he is a preacher, thanks to things like the Clergy Project, we <laughs> know might that be he, a might, non-believer. he might also be a non-believer. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, I, I worry because at one point in Austin, there were many different secular groups. There was Atheist Community of Austin. There was Center for Inquiry. There was the uh, Ethical Society. There was some other group, uh, but also campus groups. And there wasn't a lot of cooperation with them. Now, the Coalition of Reason started putting up billboards in the hopes of directing people, hey, you're in this area. Here's all the organizations in your area, and maybe they can cooperate. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't – we didn't see any boost from that. And the number of calls and emails I get from people who are like, oh, there's no atheists around us or we're not aware of any, doesn't seem to be dropping.
1: You know, it was CFI Michigan, which is a group I'm on the board of. We in Grand Rapids, we've put up a billboard twice. Um, And it's been very effective. It's gotten a tremendous amount of attention, media attention, all that. But what happened is, with both of those times, is in the following two or four or six weeks when we had our biweekly lectures, is that we would get new people showing up, going, "Oh my God, I can't believe you guys are here! I've been looking for this for so long. Uh, I, I thought we were, you know, I just thought there weren't any atheists around here because Grand Rapids is a very conservative Christian Dutch Reformed area. So at least in in our situation, it was really effective because we got so many people coming in and going, "I've been looking for this for so long." And, and I'm thinking, "Do you not own Google?" You know, but uh, but yeah, people don't see it, and the more we can get out there and promote that, is, it's really important, I think.
0: Uh, as a reminder, after the show's over, we're going to get together and go to Style Switch Barbecue, sixty six ten North Lamar. The address is down at the bottom of the screen. You can come out and have barbecue with me and Ed and some of the folks that are over there on the other side of the glass and the people who are in the back room over here, actually doing all the work to make the show happen, so that we can just wait. Sit down those and people talk. aren't hallucinations. Well, there, I can see my own reflection, so maybe I'm sitting out there. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Matt. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's great. By the way. Uh, for those who didn't know, yes, you come, can come down and watch a show. If you go to atheist-experience.com, there's information at the website about how to come down and watch the show, also about how to call into the show. We you know, have a preference for theist callers, although it looks like right now we're going to get nothing but atheist for the, for the rest of the day. Uh, but that's, that's good sometimes, too. We've got uh, Ken in New York City. Thanks for waiting. Are you Hello. there? Hey, Ken.
5: Hello. Oh, oh. hey. Sorry. I. Um, hello, Matt. I'm um, Ed. Nice to speak with you, um, especially you, Matt. I've been a huge fan for years. Um, my question is pertaining to atheism and funerals. Yep. Um, and a little bit of background I was a mortician for three years. I've been an atheist pretty much all my life. Um, never really came to the position. It's just I never really believed. Um, but I was a funeral director for three years. And during that time, you kind of have to put on an act. Like, I would have to um, say the Lord's Prayer, um, give benediction, do a whole bunch of things. And I just grew uncomfortable with it because while it wasn't a false face, I did have genuine sympathy. Um, it wasn't in the same way that, you know, these people wanted it. They wanted me to tell them that, you know, their God was looking out for their loved one eternally. And I just, you know, I would tell them that, but I wouldn't feel it. Yeah, um, and they got me to think when you know when my mother dies, you know, and oh, you know she's going to die eventually. But when she does die, am I going to go through the same false face? Like my love, you know, my loved ones are going to expect a classic Christian funeral. Um, but I've always believed the funeral is for the living, not the dead. Yep, I. And i I'm agree.
0: Mexican. It's strange know, because Ed Mexican. and I actually broached this topic a little last yeah. night. So I'll let him start, and I might chime in with something I, later. So I mentioned my dad is 81 years
1: old. And three or four years ago, I had a dream that he died and that my mm-hmm. Pentecostal stepmother and I got into a fight about with funeral because she wanted a religious funeral, and I didn't think that was appropriate, given my father was an atheist. Mm-hmm. And so I called my dad, and I told him about the dream, and he kind of laughed, and he said, this doesn't sound terribly far-fetched. And I said, mm-hmm. no, I said, that's why I'm calling you. I think maybe it's a good idea that you... You know, make your wishes known now so that they are avoid any unpleasantries. And mm-hmm. uh, and this is kind of classic. My dad, uh, mm-hmm. he said, "Ah, let her do what she wants. I don't plan to be there anyway." Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, that's and, and you know the thing is that's not what I would prefer. I would prefer mm-hmm. not having a minister overseeing the funeral and all of that. Mm-hmm. But if my dad doesn't care um, and it's going to make her happy. Whatever. I mean, I think what probably will end up happening for us is that there will be a funeral that's overseen by my uh, stepmother's pastor, who knows my dad well. It's not like this would mm-hmm. be a total stranger, you know, um, mm-hmm. and that I'll end up giving the eulogy, as I did uh, with my mother 20 years ago. Um, so mm-hmm. maybe there's a little bit of a point counterpoint there. Uh, but, you know, I'll be able to tell the story of, you know, this is who my dad really was and this is what he really believed.
0: Um, mm-hmm. And all that seems fine by me. And and I'm in a slight Now your situation is a little weirder Because you are in a A service industry where you're Expected to do certain things And I don't know enough about it to comment because I can only Imagine that if I was a funeral director And someone came up and wanted me to say Or expected me to say um, You know religious platitudes about Heaven or what's going on with You know them and Going up to God's loving arms and grace and whatever else I wouldn't say that And if you know I, I would just they get to have whatever sort of uh, ceremony and beliefs that they want. Uh, it shouldn't matter to them what their funeral director believes. And mm-hmm. I, I, granted, I'm not in that position, so I wouldn't view my job as, you know, requiring, expecting me to provide religious comfort, but I, I've never been involved in it, so I can't say. What I do know is, most of my family's religious. They're all going to have religious services. I will be at them. I won't be lying to anybody to say that you know, moms in heaven, dads in heaven, whatever. Um, I'm going to talk about the people and what the people meant to me and what I think about it. When I die, mm-hmm. I chop me up into a bunch of pieces. Let people use whatever parts of this body they they can possibly benefit from. Burn the rest and try to be you know, uh, in, not. You know, terrible about where you where you store it, and mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that my wife will go along with that. But let's say I had died before I got married. Mm-hmm. Um, let's say I died two years into the show when I'm an outspoken atheist and my family are fundamentalist Christians. They would have been mm-hmm. the ones who decided what happened and what sort of funeral that I had. Mm-hmm. I don't care. I, I would. I'm far more concerned about why they feel this need to have a religious funeral, why they believe things for the wrong reasons, than the fact mm-hmm. that they actually want me to have some sort of Christian funeral. Because mm-hmm. I'm dead. It doesn't It doesn't. Mm-hmm. affect... I can't do anything about it. I made up my mind a long time ago, to not spend much time worrying about things that I can't possibly do anything about. So I mm-hmm. uh, try to leave the world a little better than the way I found it. But, you know, when I'm dead, man, if they... Take me to a tractor pull and tie ropes on both ends. and Mm -hmm. Whatever you want. It doesn't matter to me. But Mm -hmm. I'm not the norm. Mm -hmm. And there's something important here that I actually discussed with David Smalley after his debate. And that is this. Whether or not you live in a culture that makes it likely that your wishes about your body and how it's to be disposed of or cherished or whatever Are to be respected mm. Affects the sort of life you have If you live in a in a culture Where your wishes are disregarded Like for example, the government decides Hey, everybody's a forced organ donor When you die, we're we're harvesting your body And giving it out Because we think that's for the greater good The people mm-hmm. who aren't supportive of that idea Live a life full of anxiety and dread About what's going to happen to them afterwards
1: We don't mm. respect
0: the wishes of the dead to support the dead. We respect the wishes of the dead to support the life that they had and what their wishes were during that life so that they didn't have to sit here going, oh my gosh, when I'm dead, what are they going to do to me? What we're going to do exactly what you wanted or, or we're going mm-hmm. to try to. And occasionally there's going to be fights and disagreements. But at the end of the day, if it's not about celebrating the parts of someone's life that you shared with them um, mm-hmm. and, and, and the good things in that life, if somebody just can't can't appreciate that unless you also douse it in religion. Mm-hmm. That's their problem. I think there's I, all...
1: I, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: No, go
5: ahead, Sorry, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I was listening.
1: Well, I, there's also this issue, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, I gave the eulogy at my mother's funeral. Now, my mother was my biological mother. Um, and she was one of those kind of vague, yeah, I believe in a higher power that's looking over us kind of, you know, things. But she did have a minister, Mm -hmm. a really wonderful uh, minister, who who oversaw the the funeral, and she was really great. Uh, But she had asked me, she was terminally ill for four years, and she had asked me pretty early on if I would do the eulogy. And so I had some time to prepare for this, although there's no preparing for it. When it actually happened, um, Mm -hmm. it it really was disturbing to me of trying to figure out what am I going to say. And I knew that I kind of had to broach this subject a little bit, you know. And mm-hmm. so I said, toward the end of the eulogy, I said, look, you know, the family obviously knows that I'm, I don't believe in God. I don't believe that there is a heaven. I would like to. I would love to believe that someday I'll be reunited with my mother. But I see no reason to believe that. I see no evidence to compel my belief in that. But here's right. what I do know. We live on in the way that we affected other people. That's the only form of immortality that we have, and quite frankly, it's the only form of immortality that really matters. And so I said, you know, my mother had 27 grandchildren. Uh, Every time one of those grandchildren goes fishing, they're going to remember how grandma taught them how to put a fish on a worm on the hook. Every time they make an apple pie that she showed them how to make. Uh, For me, every time I heard a Byron Streisand song, that was her favorite singer, Uh, or I drove by a Bill Naps because for some reason she loved Bill Naps and I don't think they even exist anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. Those are the things that trigger these memories, these good memories that we have. And so that's immortality uh, in in the only sense that it can exist, I think. And quite frankly, I think that's enough. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that's actually a very good answer. Um,
5: And I agree with you. I'm I'm definitely on the same page with you two gentlemen. Um, I really don't care what happens to me. Um, but it's just, well, death is kind of a, yeah, I'm not a mortician anymore. I was for three years. Yeah. Um, but it's still something that is kind of a passion for me because I look at the world and I see how much, like, you know, how much we do is dedicated to, um, kind of erasing death or the thought of death. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to funerals, almost, we almost concede that to the religious group. And there's, um, there's not,
0: one, there's one bit of caution here. We live in a world where the very, most of what we think about life and death has been mm-hmm. colored, if not poisoned, by religious doctrines. It has changed mm-hmm. the way we look at something that is uh, an eventual part of everybody's life. It has changed the expectations. It's changed how we deal with it. And the one thing to remember, especially if you're at a funeral, is that's probably not the time to debate whether or not there's a God or an afterlife with someone. Right. Uh, just because they happen to believe something. Compassion is should win out in those scenarios, but that doesn't mean that I would advocate lying. I think a show of compassion that is truthful, like Ed and I were talking about in different ways, um, goes a lot further than putting your foot down or... Talking about how how can you be so stupid as to believe this or any, anything like that? That's going to then it's going to cause conflicts.
1: Pick your timing. Mm. Yeah, and by the way, I've always loved Stephen Wright's line that he was going to donate his body to science fiction. <laughs> <You know. laughs> anyway.
5: um, okay. Yeah, that that was basically my question. Um, uh, thank you for taking my call. Hope sure. to call in again sometime.
0: Thanks, Ken. I appreciate it. There's a, by the way, there's something that I would be remiss if I didn't mention it. You know, we talked about Foundation Beyond Belief today, um, regard to secular charities. There's another organization called Grief Beyond Belief.
1: I was going to go there, too. Yeah.
0: And uh, Google, look it up. It's, it's a really good start for encouraging the secular community to change how we talk about this, how we deal with it, and to provide support for secular people. Because I had a friend once whose uh, teenage son was dying of cancer. She was a Christian. She was so sick of all the platitudes and religious nonsense that she believed but didn't provide any comfort that she would come to me to talk about, you know, let's talk about pain management. Let's talk about the practicalities of science. Let's talk about, you know, what we're going to do to make his life better for as long as we can. Um, You can be that person for somebody else. And if you find yourself in that situation where you've lost a loved one and you are tired uh, of of dealing with religious nonsense, uh, Grief Beyond Belief is an organization you can reach out to uh, for that and other things. Yeah, so.
1: Tremendously helpful and, and I I didn't reach out to them. I, One of my best friends I've ever had died a little over a year ago um, and I didn't really reach out to them but I already knew kind of what where they were going. Greta Christina has written quite a bit about this subject yep. as well and I found that very helpful uh, as I went through that So yeah, there are resources And there are people out here who have been through this um, And can lend a, a, a Kind and compassionate ear uh, And I think it's
0: really important To seek that out On that note, we'll go to uh, Robert Also in New York City, thanks for waiting You're on with Matt and Ed Okay, yes,
6: hello So, uh, I just make a quick statement About what my po- uh, parents Taught me about the afterlife Sure Okay, they, uh, they believe that uh, as long as anybody who is still alive remembered you, either fondly or non, not fondly, you existed in some form after you died.
0: Yeah, that, that's kind of what Ed was talking about. I, I, yeah. I have some pedantic objections to that to say that that is existence. Uh, but I'm fine with it as a concept because clearly we affect people's lives, well, and there's a memory it that
6: it is a con- it's a concept. Yeah. Okay. Now let me get on to my question, which uh, to me suggests that uh, that that there are uh, creators, there are universe creators who live outside the space and time of the universe they create. Okay. So my question is.
0: Here's
6: the question.
0: Yes. Were were you, were you listening earlier when we talked about a, anything outside of space and time? Yes, that's why I call. That's That's why I decided to call in
6: today. Okay. On cool. This subject.
0: So, so All I. Right. Are, are you? I'm. I'm guessing you're suggesting you have a solution to that problem. Yes. Cool. Go for it. I
6: have a, I have a question. Tell me. Uh, uh, let's see how you answer it. Okay. The question is, does George R. R. Martin live in Westeros? No. Is he outside the space and time of Westeros?
0: Westeros doesn't have space and time. How do you know that? There's no demonstration that Westeros exists as anything other than a fictional invention. If you can demonstrate that Westeros exists and has space and time, then we could start having a discussion down that path. But until that happens, you're stuck.
6: Well, you're not in the space and time of Westeros either, so how could you uh, how did you verify whether
0: it exists or not? I, I didn't. The burden of proof on claiming that Westeros has space and time is on the people who are claiming that Westeros has space and time. The time to believe it is after it's been demonstrated.
6: How would you demonstrate
0: it? I, I don't well, know. That's not my problem. I'm not the one that's that's silly enough to suggest that it has space and time. Do you think Westeros has space and time?
6: Not in this space and time. Not
0: in this. The, uh, not in this universe.
6: No. Do you think Westeros it exists? Exist in, it,
0: it, do you think Westeros exists and has space and time in some some universe, alternate reality, whatever? Exactly, yes you, you do
6: I think that any Yes you, If you uh, uh, Anytime you uh, you make a choice Or imagine anything You create a potential universe In which that, the, that Not only does that exist But the opposite of it exists
0: Is there a universe you, that I uh, can create Where I don't have to take calls That are speculative like this <laughs> Yes You may not be late. You're right.
1: This is that universe all of a sudden. Welcome
0: to the new reality. (laughs) He no longer exists in our space and time, but he's in another universe. I know Julie is right now upset that I didn't say no, 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 you're done. So if you're going to call in and talk about how you have the solution to determining that something is outside of space and time, and you begin by taking something fictional, Essentially, his his thing was if we live on in somebody's mind, which is why I have that pedantic yeah, objection. And you're right; that's a fair. And objection. then he he uses that to say, well, Westeros is a fictional, and so George R R Martin is outside of that space and time. So there's a creator outside of the space and time. Uh, no, that's that's not the way this actually works. See, we 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 inhabit a reality as far as we can tell, and uh, space time are labels that we put on uh, both the physical dimensions and what seems to be a progression of events claiming that you as someone by the way I should probably let you continue because even if we said Westeros had space and time the people in Westeros have no access to confirm that George R R, r. Martin exists done you know what just suddenly occurred
1: to me what fiction is hard solipsism yes yep. the, the westeros exists in george r r, r. martin's head he invented all of those characters in his head They do what he tells them to do And only what he tells them to do He is a hard solipsist In control of that alternate universe
0: Yeah, And the thing the thing to take away Which is why I, I, I probably should have Let that go just a, fur- a little further So I could make this point is this Daenerys Has no access to R.R. R. Martin there's, there's no way For her to cross it but Even if she exists in the space-time, you have to have a demonstration that she has access outside of space and time in order for her belief that George R. R. Martin exists to be warranted. It may be true that there is a God that exists outside of space and time, but you cannot have a warranted belief that that God exists until you demonstrate that you have some access to that which exists outside of space and time. You can't tell you anything about it, which is probably why he identifies as a pantheist, because he doesn't want to say exactly, you know, I don't want to necessarily call it a god, but there's got to be something. And that argument is as, as nonsensical as starting with Westeros. But. And
1: by the way, I have never seen one second of an episode of Game of Thrones, so uh, send your hate Get mail. Get
0: out of my studio. Send
1: your hate mail to <laughs> I Don't Care at gmail.com. <laughs> oh, I just can't. I've never seen Breaking Bad.
0: Oh, my God. I know. I'm... I want a show of hands in the studio. How many people would like Ed to continue on the show today? <laughs> all right. You got enough votes. All right. That's all right. I, I didn't know I was going to be doing a show with, like, pop-culturally illiterate your, your people. Your producer's giving me this throat slash. You're yeah. done. Out of here, kid. Uh, did you ever see Willow? No. Oh.
1: Sorry. I'm not a sci-fi or fantasy fan, other than Star Wars. I'm I'm cool with Star
0: Wars. but It just, I don't know, never got it. So, Brad in Upstate New York. Thanks for waiting. Hey, Matt. How are you? I'm doing pretty well.
7: Well, first to, uh, to upset Ed, I, there's a really great moment in the um, second Game of Thrones book, A Clash of Kings, when a no, meteor no spoilers. goes across the sky. No spoilers. <laughs> uh, it's not really a, spoiler. a meteor goes across no the sky. No spoilers. Every single. It's not a spoiler. Every single. It's also not relevant. La la, la 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 all right, la la. Right, sorry, sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, what I want to talk about is you guys talked earlier about talking to someone who's religious, who says that there's, there's nothing that would ever convince them. And I think there's always a good reason to talk to
0: someone like that, even, even if they think nothing can convince them. Oh, yes. The fact, think, the fact that they might say nothing can change my mind doesn't make it true. There are people who have been convinced right. that nothing would change their mind and yet still change their mind.
7: But there are other people who really probably there is nothing you could say that could convince them. I had a -hmm. gentleman I worked with a couple of years ago, and we became friends. And one one day he said something really outrageous. I forget exactly what it was, but it was something along the lines of, you know, there's no reason to be friends with an atheist. And so we started talking about it, and we've been talking for the last couple of years about religion. And at this point, I realized that there's nothing I can say to him that's going to convince him. But I think I have been successful in showing him that it is worth talking to atheists, that we're not bad people. And I've gained a lot myself from that discussion.
0: Sure. But did he begin by saying, you shouldn't talk with atheists and nothing can change my mind about that? Pretty
7: much. That's just about
0: exactly what he started with.
7: Cool. And it alarmed alarmed me because I knew him decently by that point in time, and it, it didn't... Fit with my knowledge of him because he was a nice person an empathetic person and it was just outrageous to me that he that a seemingly nice polite person would say something like
5: that
1: let me accept your criticism of what I said is fair because I think it is and and I've long said about when having conversations and personally I never try to deconvert anybody that's just I'm not interested in that Um, if that happens in the course of conversation and I spark a thought that's great but it's never my intention but very rarely do, does someone decide to leave their religion behind because you found that one killer argument, you know, and you nailed them with it, you know. It is, for most people, a very long process of cracks in the, yeah. in the dam, you know. And so maybe you make them, you say something that sparks a thought and kind of a little hint of doubt there. Uh, and then maybe six months later, a year later, maybe ten years later, somebody else they're in a conversation with, Sort of reinforces that idea or brings up a different thing and you know that's how people um change their views um probably both ways by the way convert from christianity to atheism and from atheism to christianity um although christianity when they're looking to deconvert atheists it tends to be that kind of um uh, that emotional uh experience to you know now you want to be saved but um yeah, there's a long process there and even if somebody thinks they can never be convinced, uh, even though personally I don't, wouldn't bother to try to convince them that their religion is wrong necessarily, but if we're talking about some specific issue uh, involving their religion and I spark a thought uh, or give them a hint of doubt about, I think that's a good thing. Um, yeah. So seeing it as a process as opposed to Oh, I've got... You know, it's like, like that Ray Comfort thing, right? I One question, I can destroy atheism. No, you can't. But the same thing's true the other way, you know? It's it's not something that... That's just not how it works. Well, I don't know.
0: I've got one question that if people took seriously, would destroy the claims that a God exists. And? I'm not going to tell you what it is. Uh, man. i what, was waiting... What say. is the evidence for the existence of God? But... It, it's it, it's a big thing that anyway that was half joking.
7: I think the other good reason to talk to people who are religious is that it's it's always surprising. I was talking to someone the other day, and uh, I was he had brought up the uh, morality of the Bible as a good reason to be a Christian. So I brought up the particularly nasty segments of the Old Testament, and he said, "Well, I don't take the Old Testament seriously. It, I don't I don't see myself as being bound by the Mosaic Law and." That surprised me pretty seriously, because in my experience, most most uh, Christians do say that the Old Testament is I, I'm reluctant,
0: no how many I'm reluctant to say most Christians, just because uh, I think there are more and more Christians who are just... I even know, did a whole video called, but that's the Old Testament, where they just want to shrug off the Old Testament, because it's inconvenient. But if you do that... I, you, should, I should call... On, can I qualify that? I should say
7: most Christians who are very fundamentalist and take it seriously sure.
0: yeah yeah so that, but,
7: he was but, someone who but if you it. get
0: rid of the Old Testament what did you get rid of oh you got rid of creation you got rid of the fall you got rid of uh the, the Mosaic covenant the noadic covenant you got rid of the Jews being j- chosen as selected you, so you got rid of the original sin why why is there a Jesus
1: I, I always say in a situation where people do that if you're going to tell me which parts and usually it isn't I really hear someone say, I just ignore the Old Testament. They'll just ignore bits and pieces of it, the parts that are inconvenient for them. And, and my sort of counter to that is always, okay, before you tell me which parts of the Old Testament, or, or the New Testament for that, or which parts of the Bible that you decided aren't real or allegorical or metaphorical or whatever, before you tell me that, I want you to give me a, a method of exegesis. Uh, give me a hermeneutic by which you determine, what's your criteria for deciding what parts you accept as real and what parts you think are metaphorical. Some of them are pretty clearly metaphorical. I mean, when, and it says in Isaiah when the, you know, the mountains sang and the trees clapped. I don't think anybody believes that trees actually clapped their branches together.
0: Some of it or, clearly uh, is, maybe in Westeros.
1: Year. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> but the parts they're taking as not real, give me the criteria up front first because otherwise there's an almost certain chance that you are engaged in post hoc reasoning of I don't like that part of it I'm going to ignore it well we uh, we both know what the reasoning
3: is
7: is the reasoning is a base human idea of morality that they're then applying
0: to the bible yep but is, well one of, of the things course. that happens and this happened to me recently I was talking to a preacher and the story of the book of Job, the story of Job, uh, there's a lot of problems there. And his take on it was, <coughs> well, it's a poem. It's not like this really happened. Well, I'm I'm agreement with you. It probably didn't happen. I have no reason to think it did happen, although it was always presented in the past as having actually happened. But saying it's a poem doesn't solve the problem. Saying it's a poem just means that there's a poem in a book inspired by God that makes it very clear that you are all playthings to be fucked with on a bet. It doesn't matter whether it actually happened or whether you said it actually happened or whether it's a poem. The moral of that story is the same, and it's just as much of a problem. Oh, God's not God's not a big enough you know ass to actually do that. Well, that's the moral of the story, whether you think he actually did it or not.
7: Yeah, I mean the slaughter of the Medianites, whether you view it as metaphorical or historical, is, yeah. it's a it's an awful message,
1: regardless of what you think that it is. And by the way, that was the book of the Bible that did it for me, Numbers thirty-one. Yeah, the attack on the Medianites. Numbers Midianites. thirty-one. Yeah, and and it particularly that's, in that's partic- my, uh, my go-to. It's I mean that was really the thing that when I read it, I I went, what? Yeah, and I went to my ministers and I'm like, explain this to me that God would command them to slaughter all of the men, all of the male children, all of the married women, keep the young virgins alive for themselves, and distribute them to the soldiers as the spoils of war. And I said to them, even Adolf Hitler didn't do that. So how in the world can that be justified? And of course I got this, you know, who are you to question God? God knows more than we do. He knows that ultimately it was actually a better thing for, you know, screw you. This is nonsense. This is a horrible, horrible thing that you believe God actually commanded, and I cannot believe that.
7: The other counter I've heard to that was that, well, it was for some reason, okay, then,
1: and, and not okay now. Yeah, yeah. from the same people who criticize us yeah. for for moral relativism, by the way. Yeah, I had this. Exactly. Conver-
0: I had a similar conversation um, after Smalley's recent debate in Dallas. I was talking about. I was basically I had four Christians surrounding me, um, and we were talking about slavery. And I brought up various verses in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy uh, to back things up. And what I got from them was four different answers. One was it used to be moral but now it's immoral. One was, uh, the New Testament, uh, made it immoral, uh, but the, what the Bible has to say about it doesn't necessarily make it moral. Somebody else was, that's indentured servitude. It's nothing like the, uh, the African slave trade in the United States. And the other one said that slavery, as outlined in Exodus, is in fact still moral. And after going back and forth with them, I finally said, the four of you need to sit down and discuss this. And when you come to me with what the correct answer is and the justification that you guys agree on, then I'll address it again. Because all you're really demonstrating is that if you begin with the bias that this must necessarily be a good thing, you can make up whatever the hell you want. You can spin it however you like. And all you're doing is sacrificing your humanity on the altar of some idea that you have no reason to believe is true. It's embarrassing the hoops that people will jump through to try to make a moral monster, as depicted in the Old Testament, look like a good guy.
7: You would think that um, being as Christianity is based on faith in a book. Atheism is a group, atheists are a group really defined by what they are not, that atheists would be the group with, you know, beliefs and ideas all over the place and christians would be in a group with a more clearly defined set of morals and ideas but well i, to I, I went to i went What's to the
0: you know i went to the new testament verse that said let god be true and every man a liar and so they're all lying and you know or god is not the author of confusion is even better uh because that demonstrates that clearly god didn't author any of that because there's way too much confusion
7: All right, well, thank you very much for talking to me. I just want to move, before I hang up, I'll hang, go re- real briefly back to my original point and say I was watching a lecture by Daniel Dennett where he said that he thinks there's an issue with people trying to win debates so much, and that the real way you win anything in a debate is if you talk to someone, gain new information and knowledge that changes your own beliefs so you have a better opinion on what you're talking about. I, I, I think, think that is a win. I think that, a, that is, is a win. To talk
0: to people. I think that is a win. But I also think if my mind wasn't changed and somebody else was, and now two people are correct, that's also a win. Uh, but sure. I don't I don't I'll look uh, at debates as a win-lose, really.
1: I think you and can actually do idea. both. I think you can both be strategic in trying to win the debate and be interested in the educational aspects of it. Yeah. And it's one of the of reasons... Or if they
7: don't convince you, yeah, yeah, maybe, well, you maybe you've... Maybe you realize that you there's an argument that you didn't think about or don't have a good rebuttal to. And yep.
1: Then that's after good. You've that's heard good. That you have one. Yeah. Yep. That, that's, you know to use a biblical metaphor, iron sharpens iron, right?
0: And iron exactly. chariots stop God. But. Thanks, Brad, for the call. I Appreciate it. Hey, thank you very much. Been listening to you year, for years. Finally called in, so thank you very much. Thanks. So one of the things I've tried to move debates the debates I do to be more conversational. And the last one that I did, uh, I think almost all the feedback has been positive. I mean, people are concerned that, you know, this guy who I debated didn't really have a strong reason to believe in a God. Or it was kind of a fuzzy, faithy, let's enjoy life. And science can't tell you about beauty, so I'll go with God. Right. Uh, but the fact that it was a discussion, and rather than, you know, like I talk, you talk kind of format um, – was really beneficial there's more of that coming uh by the way i'll have one in january to announce that is just me and a christian sitting on a stage having a conversation but i can't tell you who it is yet uh, and we'll let me
1: there. put in a quick plug for uh, my very dear friend and roommate justin schieber yes who has a new book coming out with randall rouser who is a canadian christian apologist and it is almost a Twitter dialogue uh it is the whole book is just them going back and forth on all of these philosophical arguments for the existence of god not the christian god just the bare existence of god mm-hmm. um and so but they both they, they both took this approach of interpreting the other very charitably asking good questions not getting defensive and just trying to have a really substantive dialogue about these issues. And I think, I think I've seen the, you know, the advanced copy. I think they were pretty successful at that. And I do think that's an important aspect. I, uh, about two years ago, I did a debate on the question of whether uh, the Constitution is based on the Bible or Christianity. Um, and when I asked the person that I, my opponent to do it, he's the president of the Michigan Association of Christian Schools, when i asked him to do it we sat down and talked and i said i said listen right up front i want to make sure that we're both on the same page this has to be a civil dialogue Uh, we're not going to yell at each other we're going to treat each other with respect and he said absolutely i agree with you so we put this debate together and yes it's educational and but the education is usually going to be for the audience not so much for the participants yeah but you can certainly learn something. You, they may come up with an argument you've never heard before. It didn't happen in this case. But if they do, that's a good thing. I think, and I have a background in competitive debate. I, I both participated in it and coached it uh, at a pretty high level back in the Paleolithic era. Um, and I think you can be both interested in winning the debate and thinking strategically about how to do that at the same time that you're putting a focus on the educational part of it, and the key to it is intellectual honesty.
0: Yeah, I want them all to be... I learn something in every debate I do, but one of the things that happens is after I'm finished with the debate, I then go back and do a debate review where I talk about the mistakes I made, the mistakes the other person made. Hopefully they made more than me, whatever. But I also talk about the strategy behind decisions that I made. I'm, I'm currently working on... Uh, a debate review for the last debate that I did with Matt Slick and then I'll probably do the debate with Eric Hernandez on the existence of a soul as the next review. Um and the goal of this, because when I go into a debate, I don't think I'm gonna change Matt Slick's mind. No. I do think that there are minds that may change. Maybe they'll change maybe this was the last straw, maybe maybe they were just wishy washy and hey you made the best argument, so I'm gonna change my mind. Who knows? But there's something that I've learned at every single debate that I've done, and one of the overarching themes is that it, the more closer we move it to conversation, the better everybody feels afterwards with regard to how it went. Because if it if it becomes this you know sniping pot shot you know strongly adversarial thing. Um, that seems to reinforce, based on the experience that I've had talking to people afterwards, it seems to reinforce the positions that people came in with. Because I've talked before about how a debate is a little bit of theater, about how you have to make a connection with the audience. Because if I walk into a church that's got you know, 300, 400 people sitting in it, um, they're already, they. some of them are going to think that I'm evil from the outset. Some of them are going to think I'm lost and confused. They have some picture in their head of what atheism is and what an atheist is. And my goal in in having these conversations and doing these debates is to fundamentally confound that mental image so that they can never say, I've never met an atheist. I've never met an atheist who gave you know seemingly good reasons or reasons I could understand for why they don't believe. I've never met an atheist who challenged um, my reasons for belief. Anything along those lines I want to change that It's not about Immediately changing Somebody's mind It's about trying To move them To think in a way That is more likely To get you to truth And I love the Q&A sections Because the question is I've been doing this show For 11 years There's a reason Why we take callers Granted we're not getting A bunch of theists today But there's still things To think about And learn from Every one of them
1: Whenever I give a talk uh, The most interesting part To me is always the Q&A Because I know What I have to say Yeah I know what I'm going to say. It's interesting going, getting the back and forth from people and the feedback. And sometimes, uh, as happened this morning, earlier this afternoon here in Austin, um, you know, someone will bring up a point and sort of in, someone sort of criticized my behavior um, on a per, very specific subject. And I, you know, I said I, I accept your criticism. It's a fair criticism, mm-hmm. and I do need to change that. Uh, and I, you know, I'll make the effort to do so. So. Yeah, some, sometimes, it, one of the things I hate about, I've been blogging for 13 years now. November 2003, I started that blog. One of the things I hate about comment sections is that you get a following, and then you get treated as infallible. Yep. And so many, many times on my blog, I have put up a post on a subject, and then someone comes along and says, I think you're wrong, and let me explain why in a comment. And long before I ever saw that comment, 257 of my readers have already napalmed this guy out of existence and called him every name in the book. And then I come along and look at his argument and go, that's actually a good point. And it may not completely defeat what I said, but it may at least make my argument stronger. Okay, try it a different way, you know. Um, And that always bothers me. And it's just like you said to the guy earlier Go out and take a walk Yeah. Don't get your information from one person Don't watch me
0: every day And think that I'm infallible Because I'm not Interesting question it Hit me on, on Twitter And I have my thoughts on it But I'm going to ask you So I'm going to spring it on you If it were possible For you to just Become God All powerful all knowing Would you do it?
1: Wow That is a really interesting question Um well, as a hard solipsist, of course, I already believe that. No, uh, joking. Um, wow.
0: You're a solipsist?
1: <laughs> uh, actually, solipsism is my answer to the transcendental argument, um, which is probably not a good argument. You'd probably tell me why I was wrong. but
0: No, Alex Malpass will tell you why you're wrong. It's a
1: very flippant uh, response to it, because I don't think it's an argument that needs to be taken seriously. Uh, boy,
0: would I do that? I don't think so. I don't think so, either. Huh. Um, I said possibly because there was a lot to think about. But for me, if I know everything and can do everything, and, and so the book I'm working on, called "If I Were God," addresses this question in a different way. I just hadn't been asked it directly. What is there? What, what is the purpose? I'm not going to learn anything new. I'm not. There's no surprise. Um, nothing's going to go wrong. Unless I actually try to create something, and somehow, despite being infallible, I create something that can go wrong. I so, think I think would
1: just spend all of my time seeing if I can create a rock that I couldn't lift.
0: It, I, no, it, I, the you know, answer I, is yes
1: and no. Here's, you know, I guess uh, the reason I say no is I don't trust anyone with that kind of power, including myself.
0: Yeah, th- there, there is the power issue, but I mean, I was looking at it from the blank slate of, sure. There's no worlds, there's no nothing, I'm just God. Because the first question is, why would God create anything in the first place? Sure. And the only thing I can come up with is because it's dead ass boring, <laughs> knowing everything. Right. But, but also, if you create something, you would have to intentionally hide the future from yourself. Right. Because if you know what's going right. to happen, that's just as boring. Yeah, you're watching a movie you already made. Yeah. Uh, Although I would, <sighs> you say, you know, okay, you're
1: God, now you know everything. But if you didn't create something, nothing actually exists other than you,
0: what does it mean to know everything? Well, you would already know everything about what it would be like to have created this universe Universe. or that universe. If you did it. Yeah. Yeah. You you know, you don't even have to, and because there's no time, you already know it, you don't even have to take time to think about it (laughs) because there's no time. Anyway, we're we're coming up on the last uh, 10 minutes or so. I'll get a couple more calls in, and they'll put the address up for... uh, it's uh, Barbecue uh, that we're going to after the show. Um, we've got Corey in Charlotte, North Carolina. Thanks for waiting. You're on with Matt and Ed. Hey, uh, well, I got a, um,
2: I got a good um, unpleasant story for you. Basically, I got the opportunity to attend the Southern Evangelical Seminary annual conference in Charlotte, North Carolina. hmm And um,
1: that sounds like it fun. Was
2: rather just. You know, it was actually rather disturbing. I was hoping to get a lot more out of it than I did. But basically what I got out of it is that these people are so far to the right, some of the things they were teaching, I had never even heard of before. For instance, the Gospel of Matthew is the first gospel and dates to the year 40. Hadn't heard that one before. Um, Hitler's religion was actually neo-Darwinism and that Darwin was the cause for the Holocaust. I haven't heard that one before. Really? The Shroud of the Turin is a legit archaeological uh, artifact
0: that proves that Jesus existed. Okay, we're three for three on epic fails.
1: And, uh, and, and yeah. three for three on arguments I've already heard. I don't think those are all yeah. that unusual coming from conservative Christians.
2: Yeah. um, And also, I mean, Frank Turek was there. Josh McDowell was there. uh, You know, Jay Jay Warner Wallace was there. I'm just going through the schedule right now, just trying to make sense of everything. And wow, I had no idea that there were people this far to the right. I mean, I was that far to the right. I mean the gospel of Matthew being the first gospel and dates to the year forty, that's just like I, not even
0: close. I, I'm sure at some point I believed that, if that's what the preacher told us. Now, once I actually investigated beyond I mean there's no this this stuff is irrelevant because most of these people who believe, for example, that Matthew was the first gospel and written in the in the forties, they don't know what the hell the book says anyway. They don't know anything about the other <laughs> books. They demonstrated that they don't know anything about the canonization project process, that we don't have originals. When I was in Australia I was arguing with a guy who thinks the earth is somewhere between six and ten thousand years old and that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were actually written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now the, the, these are both clearly demonstrably wrong and we were having a conversation about that. But it's incredibly common and it's because if you are indoctrinated into these beliefs, you're going to believe whatever the preacher tells you. This is is exactly what we're talking about of having one person that while they may not be infallible, they're, they're the authority. They're the one who knows, hey, he's a spiritually wise person. If I have a question about God, who am I supposed to go to? I'm supposed to go to the preacher. And so if my question is about the Gospels and my preacher is grossly uninformed or lying, um, then whatever answer he gives me, and whatever... So you mentioned Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell wrote yeah. a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict uh, and then the new Evidence That Demands a Verdict, which didn't have any new evidence in it. Uh, it was just a new version of the old book. And um, that book is amazing if you already believe and don't investigate beyond the book it and, and don't understand logical fallacies. It is an incredibly compelling preaching to the choir book, but it is it has been debunked and ripped apart start to finish. And if you go to infidels.org, actually, um, there's like a good chapter by chapter deconstruction of his book. But theists don't tend to go to infidels.org. I did. During the period of time where I was trying to find a way to convince my atheist roommate, I cared enough to figure out, hey, what are atheists saying? And I went to infidels.org. And it was one of many things that helped lead me away.
2: Yeah, um, and I actually um, sat down and spoke with a, a pastor and a student who just graduated from the Southern Evangelical Seminary, and he says, look, you know, I read Cohen Greek, I read Coptic, I read Hebrew, I can tell you Matthew is the first gospel, I can show you here in an Evangelical Seminary textbook where it says that, and I was like, well don't you think that an evangelical seminary textbook might be slightly biased compared to, let's say, Bart Ehrman's secular textbook? And that just threw him off on a rant. And at some point I was just kind of like, you know what? I'm not going to agree to disagree on any of this. We're just kind of going to have to cut this off because it was, it was just going nowhere.
1: Okay. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. If, if that same person had had, if you had suggested a book that, that you thought showed him to be wrong, and he had said, well, it comes from an atheist. Isn't that biased? What would you have said?
2: I would have said that, that the that it comes from a secular source and that atheism is not a world, or that, it, first of all, it didn't come from an atheist. It came from an
1: agnostic, Bart Ehrman. He's an atheist. He is, simply, he is both well, an atheist an agnostic and an atheist. He is right. What, what difference does it make? He, he refers well, okay, to him okay. as himself as both. Ed's pointing pointing out yeah. something. Yeah, the point is, accusations of bias are pretty much completely meaningless, because the problem with bias, if bias is a problem, is that it pushes someone or encourages them to make bad arguments. And so, when when you say, "Well, that's an evangelical source, so therefore it's biased," skip over the bias. Okay. And go to let me tell you why that's a bad argument. We we tend to use these shortcuts uh of not engaging an argument but dismissing an argument because we've op- applied a label to it. And I've for many years I have used this phrase and I know it's terrible Latin, um, argumentum ad labelum. Hmm. Uh whereby people think that if they've if they've applied a label to an idea, they have therefore defeated the idea. In fact, they haven't even attempted to defeat the idea. They haven't engaged the idea at all. They have simply applied a label and then said, I'm done with it. So forget the accusations of bias. If the bias has caused them to be wrong about something, tell me why they're wrong about something.
0: And I would suggest when they come to you and and tell you what an expert they are and how they've dated it, you know, Matthew is the earliest in the 40s. um, I wouldn't go to... Erman, or any atheist or secular source i'd grab the new international version of the bible and open it to the cover page for the book of matthew where it explains that we don't know who the author was and and when they dated it and now you're using something that is at least from within their ver- worldview you are very likely going to have them respond with that's the niv we don't pay any attention to the niv because we are authorized version 1611 king james version only um, yeah. And then you get to talk about why are you only using that one. And by the way, that doesn't, ha- still doesn't do anything to demonstrate the dating for this. You can go to earlychristianwritings.com, I think it is. You can go to Wikipedia. And when you go to Wikipedia, you can go down to the sources and you can start comparing. And you'll actually find what the scholarship is across the board on how we date and authenticate when the Gospels were likely to be written. And the most that you can ever say is that despite his education and understanding, he holds a clearly minority view that scholarship doesn't take seriously. And that whether it was written in 40 or 70 or 80 or 90 is secondary to whether or not the events it describes actually occurred. I don't care, yeah. you know, Joe Bob wrote it last week. It could be true. Or it could not be true. How do we do, how do we resolve that? If they're so focused on Matthew was the first gospel written in forty, by the way, the biggest reason they're trying to do that is so that they can claim that, that the talk of the destruction of the temple was a prediction rather than something that was written after the fact. Um, they still don't get anywhere near demonstrating that what's in the book is true. And besides that, the four gospels
1: were written by John, Paul, George, and Ringo.
2: Actually, they argued that the four Gospels were written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as well. So, I mean, it was just, they threw so much at me that I never even knew existed as an idea. I was just, like, so put off. I didn't even know where to begin. I mean, I I really was just trying not to roll my eyes and just, you know, kind of stare at them in disbelief. None of this is new to me.
0: None of this is new to me or Ed. Yeah. And I still would have difficulty not rolling my eyes. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. In fact, I would roll my eyes. be more likely to roll my eyes because I'm familiar with it. Yeah, I oh it my before. God!
0: This again. Yeah, right. <laughs> but on that note, we got to let you go. We've run up against our time limit for today. Thanks, Corey. I appreciate it. Apologies to those who didn't get through. Special thanks to Ed for coming out and doing the show. Pleasure Thank you, to sir. Have you Always here. a pleasure. The uh, by the way, the recording of today's uh, talk from Ed will be up on the ACA website at some point. Uh, after its process. So if you were unable to make it down for the special lecture today, you'll be able to watch it at the website at some point. We're heading out to Style Switch Barbecue, 6610 North Lamar Boulevard. Uh, I'll be out of town next week. I'm pretty sure that Russell and somebody will be on here, but you can always find out who's probably going to be on the show by going to atheist com. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
6: This is Russell Glasser, host of The Atheist Experience. You know, The Atheist Experience is made possible by volunteers and the generous support of viewers like you. If the promotion of positive atheist culture and separation of church and state are values that you hold, please consider contributing by becoming an ACA member or visiting our product page at evolvefish.com under the partner tab. Thank you.